Okay, this is um, session 10B, the second half of our um, session looking at chapters 19 and 20, which really need to be read together. Um, I'll, I'll, Hannah's with me. I'll just start by um, praying. Father God, just ask that you would be with Hannah and I today. Help us to just be in the zone and hearing from you and thinking and speaking clearly. And I just pray that for anyone listening that you'll just be with them and blessing them, open their ears and their hearts. And I pray that um, things that are true will just um, lodge and settle and help people to respond to you and relate to you and live before you in new ways. And I just pray that you'd bless everyone who's listening to this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so just a little recap. Um, as I said at the beginning of last session, um, many commentators interpret chapters 19 and 20 as a chronology. So there's a wedding, then there's a battle, then there's a thousand-year rule, another battle. Um, I'm uh, not going down that track at all. In fact, I think that that whole chronological way of interpreting chapter 19 and 20 misses the point. Um, and so all those debates about, you won't know about this, Hannah, but there's lots of theological debates about pre-millennialist, post-millennialist, when are Christians going to be removed from the earth, etc. And they're all chronological debates trying yeah. to sort out the chronology. And I think that they are, they are all total red herrings. Because the point of these chapters is not first and foremost to tell you history in advance. It's explaining relationships. Mm. Um, and we we talked about that a little bit um, last time. But I just want to re-emphasise the point because one of the things that I think I said at the beginning of last session was how thinking relationally is a much more helpful way of understanding the winding up of the end of the age, these mm -hmm. chapters 19 to 22. But I didn't really join the dots and explain, well, why is it that thinking relationally is, is a much more productive way to think? Mm -hmm. And it really goes back to... Um, it really goes back to understanding something that we talked about right at the beginning of our study of Revelation, and that is one of the main things Jesus emphasises in these visions about himself is that he is the end. Mm. So he says it there in the first chapter, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He restates the, the exact same um, titles about himself mm. at the end of chapter 22, right at the end of these visions. Mm. It's a key, key point. Mm -hmm. He's wanting to tell you he is the end. Mm -hmm. A person is the end. Um, and I think if you are, if you are understanding Jesus that way, understanding that that, that the end of things is about um, ultimately how how different beings or groups or or whatever how they relate to this person defines their end mm. that that really makes sense mm. of what's going on in these chapters the focus of these visions is a person and his relations um so when, when we 
I'm not saying the end is not historical. It is. Events mm. uh, will play out in time and space. Mm. But we mustn't think of history as some sort of independent space that's independent from God and how he acts. Mm. Um, um, history and time and space is created by God. Mm. Um, so everything in these de- these visions is de- defined in relation to him, including the progress of history. Mm. Um, that's a really, really important idea that I think unlocks lots of what we're about to talk about. A couple of other things to say too is it, it just understanding the nature of prophecy. I, I don't think prophecy is well understood in the church today. Far too often um, you hear it interpreted as though it is history written in advance, mm. that it's a way of knowing the future somehow. Um, if you look at the development of prophecy through the Old Testament and how it's handled in Revelation as well, um, God remains completely free to take us by surprise regarding the future. Mm. So, so. Um, very often in terms of the fulfilment of prophecy, there will be elements that are unexpected and there will also be elements that go far beyond the original purview of the prophet. Mm. Um, And and probably the last thing to say about prophecy is um, one of the things about end-time events that I think is a surefire sign that you're not interpreting the book um, in a valid way, is that if you have a perspective of end-time end events that makes it impossible to preach that Jesus is coming back soon, like near, mm. um, that, that is, if, if it's not possible that Jesus could have come back every generation from the cross to the present, yeah. Then, you, then you're probably presenting a perspective of the end times that's not valid mm. because that's the thing that's emphasised again and again. And we'll see it at the end of chapter 22. Mm. And, and it's what the whole of the New, New Testament reinforces. It's not a revelation idea. Yeah. That is, Jesus can come back tomorrow. And yeah. if he does, every promise is completely fulfilled. But we're yeah. not waiting for things that haven't happened yet. Yeah. That's yeah. a really important thing to understand. Um, so we're going to um, persist with this relational understanding of these last few chapters and, and um, what, what we'll see is a developing picture of the complete restoration and recreation of everything in terms of God's created order with Jesus right at the centre and so last, I, I, I don't know if you remember, but last chapter we began to look at some of these key relations. Jesus' relation to the church, mm-hmm. um, Jesus' relation to Israel, mm-hmm. Jesus' relation to the nations, mm-hmm. Jesus, Jesus' relations to the, the spiritual enemies that have resisted his rule in the kingdom of God. Mm-hmm. A lot of that will be resolved in this chapter. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a very important chapter for that reason. Um, so just before we, we move into uh, chapter 20, let's just do a quick refresh of 
um, what is it? What is it about the very end of things and the presence of Jesus that we've come to see already? Well, first thing to say is it's been emphasised again and again that when Jesus comes back and returns to the earth, mm-hmm. it will be visible. Mm-hmm. People will see it everywhere. It'll be sudden. Mm-hmm. You won't be able to have uh, predicted it. It'll be cosmic. That that is, it'll it'll um, the impact of his coming will will affect all of heaven and all of earth. Mm-hmm. The scope's enormous, and it will be glorious in the sense that he will be seen for who he truly is. Mm-hmm. He he will come unveiled yeah. as the conquering um, king, the glorious Lamb. Um, the second thing that we've seen again and again, and it was strongly uh, reinforced in the last chapter, is that he, his coming again will fulfill all the Old Testament promises. So, and, and we've seen we've seen John uh, tapping into lots of these threads mm-hmm. as he starts to uh, bring together the the his visions to a sort of culmination. So, you know, pictures of a new exodus, um, the fulfilment of covenant promises, all the Old Testament language around the re-establishment of Mount Zion and the kingdom of God, mm-hmm. um, uh, lots of new creation language that cre- all creation is going to be renewed, mm-hmm. um, the establishment of kingdom and, and all of those things to do with um, the messianic proven- pr- uh, promises that, uh, one will come and re-establish the kingdom. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, all the prophecies to do with the day of the Lord, where where God will come and judge, and people will be judged and, and get their just desserts, and justice will be established. Yeah. Um, and lastly, the, the promise that comes out of Isaiah, particularly in the Old Testament of Emmanuel or God with us, that God's final intention is mm-hmm. to come and dwell with his people. And we'll see that um, play out in the next couple of chapters as well. So that's the second thing. Promises of Scripture, of the Old Testament Scripture, are being fulfilled by these final events. And lastly, what we're seeing in these final events in Jesus' return to the earth is not so much um, the beginning of a victory but the manifestation of a victory already won. So these battles that are being described aren't the decisive defeat of God's enemy. That's Mm. happened already at Mm. the cross. What you're seeing is an unveiling Mm -hmm. of of reality for everyone to see. Um, And so uh, the victory established at the cross will be made manifest and everyone will know. Mm. Um, so that the enemies of God will experience their defeat. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And it's all again. What we'll see is it's relational. Mm. That that Israel will experience the the cross from their perspective, and the enemies of God will experience the cross from their perspective, mm-hmm. and the nations will experience the cross from their perspective, and the church will experience the cross. Mm. From their perspective, yeah, that's a really helpful way to say it. So, um, 
I keep saying just one more thing before we get into chapter 20. But the last thing I wanted to say was, was just to emphasize that we've begun look at looking at this already in chapter 19. So if you recall chapter 19, it was really built around an explanation of two key relationships um, explained. Jesus and the church, mm-hmm. and how was that relationship explained? As the wedding? Yeah, as a wedding, and it's the coming of a bride to to the bridegroom, and the lamb is the bridegroom, and the church is the bride. Mm-hmm. And we talked a uh, lot. So um, the end of the age is a consummation of the relationship. That is a coming together, a final coming together. Fulfillment. Yeah, a fulfillment of um, that promise that God w- would would come and um, dwell with His people. And that picture revolved around a w- being invited to a wedding banquet. Mm. Um, there was an there was a second picture though too that explained the relationship to some extent between Jesus and the nations. What was that picture? Do you remember the battle? Yeah, yeah. And how was the lamb represented in the conqueror? Yeah, yeah. That the idea that that Jesus would would come as a great conquering king, and that's how the nations are going to experience. His coming, and he will gather them for judgment. And that judgment's like an alternative feast or an alternative banquet, and we saw that. Mm. Um, and and the nations, including um, what we see, what we'll see is Israel, will experience Jesus' righteousness and holiness in relationship, but in different ways. So Israel will, will experience um, the, um, Jesus' righteousness and, and holiness in his work as their deliverer mm-hmm. and they'll see oh he's the one he is the messiah um and the nations will experience his righteousness and holiness in judgment in wrath where where they'll um recognize uh this is not a king that you can challenge and get away with it and they'll be called to account okay so that was the picture out of chapter 19 and what we see in chapter 20 um is a return to some of these same ideas. Um, so I don't think that the battle in chapter 20 is is different from the battle in chapter 19. Rather, John's vision returns to the same battle, mm-hmm. um, this, essentially the same metaphor, and makes different points about it, but it's not a different event in the chronology just another perspective. Yeah, a different perspective on the same thing. And that's strongly let reinforced in the in the language and structure of what we're about to read because what the the discussion of the battle in chapter 20 um so we're talking about 20 verse 8 to 10 um uses even some of the same phrases that are used in chapter 19. And chapter 16, in fact, this battle's been discussed three times. It also uses some of the identical Old Testament allusions from Ezekiel, um, really reinforcing this idea that we, we, we don't have a different battle here. It's mm. just it's just returning to the battle and looking at it from a, from a slightly different perspective. Okay, let's read the chapter and then we'll begin um, exploring chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20. The thousand years. And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss and holding in his hand a great chain. 
he sees the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations any more until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge, and I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony for Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who have part in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. Satan's doom. When the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. In number they are like the sand on the seashore. They marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. The dead are judged. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. Earth and sky fled from his presence and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and each person was judged according to what he had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So a relatively short chapter you might be relieved to know that we're going to be looking at today. I think the first thing to do before we start digging in is just have a think about the context in which this vision um, is being presented to churches. So we have in Asia Minor a whole bunch of churches that are under serious persecution. People are dying for their faith. Mm -hmm. And you can imagine the really pressing questions in these churches is why are we suffering? I, you know, we, we thought Satan was defeated. Mm. How come we're, we're under such heavy attack mm. um, as the people of God on the earth? And I think the visions that we see here uh, profoundly address those fundamental questions. Um, and we see structurally the chapter um, there is a sequence to it uh, for everything that I've said about that it's not chronologically sequential. There is a sequence here yeah. um, that is significant and it works this way. Um, John's vision explains uh, 
what's going on in terms of satanic persecution and satanic power. So he makes three points, or the, the, the pictures make three points. First, Satan is bound. We, we hear that in verse 2. Mm. So we need to understand what that's all about. There will be a time for a short time where Satan will be freed. Mm-hmm. So that, that occurs sequentially. And then finally, after that short time, Satan will be judged and condemned once and for all. So we'll build our we'll, we'll build our interpretation of chapter 20 around being clear about what is this prophecy saying about Satan being bound, judged, and then sorry, freed mm. for a short time and then judged. Mm-hmm. Alongside that, there's another thing going on that's to do with this, with um, addressing the question of suffering and the role of the saints. Mm-hmm. And, and it really, um, it's this amazing picture of um, alongside Satan being bound, the other half of the story is the saints are ruling or sharing in the rule of the Messiah. Mm-hmm. Um, and we need to know why are those two things put together? Why, why are they occurring alongside each other? Mm-hmm. So let's start with verse 1 to 3. It's quite a complex picture mm-hmm. um, of an angel coming out of heaven holding two things, a key and a chain. And what, what, what happens in this picture, Hannah, that you can see? Um, he uh, seizes Satan and binds him for a thousand years. Yep, yep. So um, sa- Satan is overpowered and bound. Yep, so presumably that's what the chain's for. Yep. And then what happens? And then he's thrown into the abyss, which is locked and sealed, um, to stop Satan from deceiving the nations until the thousand years are ended. Okay, so that's quite interesting. There's a binding of Satan for a particular purpose. Mm. That is that he would not be able to deceive the nations. Mm-hmm. So um, that's a really important bit of information. And then lastly, we're told he he will be set free for a short time at the end of that of that thousand years. Okay, again, this picture is drawn from Old Testament understandings of what's going to happen at the end of the age. Um, And a little helpful couple of verses from Isaiah chapter 24, verses 21 to 22, will just show you that that um, this sort of picture is is drawn from the prophets. Hannah's going to read it to you. In that day, the Lord will punish the powers in the heavens above and the kings on the earth below. They will be herded together like prisoners bound in a dungeon. They will be shut up in prison and be punished after many days. Okay. So um, maybe we don't need to take so much time um, unlocking the whole context, context etc. But this this idea that the, the, at the end of the age, the powers in heaven, that is spiritual powers that have arrayed against God's kingdom and his rule will be punished along with the kings on the earth and that their punishment um, 
is likened to being shut up in prison, their judgment for a period of time, um, which um, highlights their loss of power and authority. Mm. This idea of the binding of Satan, um, again, there's many crazy interpretations you you hear and read about um, what this actually means. Um, I think one of the most interesting places to develop a bit of an understanding of what's going on here is to go and listen to Jesus himself talk about what it means for Satan to be bound. Mm. Um, And there's a particular story in the Gospels that I, I think provides great insight into what's going on in this Revelation prophecy, Um, and it's from Matthew 12. Um, I'll just flick back so that I can follow while Hannah reads it to you. Um, It's it's in the middle of a controversy that Jesus is having um, with with the Pharisees, and they're... um, they're questioning where his power comes from. Mm-hmm. But there's a few really interesting things about the passage that that I just want to pick up. So I'm in Matthew chapter 12, verse, um, we'll start at verse 18 because that provides some context, context for the story. So um, It talks about how Jesus' ministry is fulfilling the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah. And and, and just in a sentence to sum up what's going on here, mm. um, in Isaiah, in the last uh, 26 chapters of Isaiah, chapters 40 to 66, mm-hmm. it's really about the promise of the coming of the servant of the Lord, this unusual figure in the Old Testament, a humble, mm-hmm. meek mm-hmm. Um, representative of God who's going to come and be the agent for the redemption of Israel. Mm-hmm. And then the last chapter's really um, the momentum um, builds and it's really about the um, the restoration of Israel mm-hmm. and God's kingdom on the earth. Mm-hmm. Um, but what what you have here in the Matthew story, before we get to the bit that we're particularly interested in, is Um, three verses or four verses that really talk about how Jesus' ministry fulfills the the promise uh, made through the prophet Isaiah. So do you just want to read 18 to 21? Here is my servant whom I have chosen, the one I love, in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will proclaim justice to the nations. He will not quarrel or cry out. No one will hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a smouldering wick he will not snuff out till he leads justice to victory. In his name the nations will put their hope. Okay, so that's pretty much taken straight from Isaiah chapter 42, the beginning of Isaiah chapter 42. Mm-hmm. I just want to pick up one point. Um, th- this, is, this is how... Um, God is laying out that that he's going to restore and redeem Israel. Mm. But what's interesting about that last verse? All the nations will put their hope? Yeah, that that he's going to do something that's going to draw all nations to himself and and all nations will put their hope in this figure. 
Now, that's I think that's going to be quite important um, for what, what we're about to say. So hold that thought. Then what happens is there's this controversy where Jesus drives out a demon. I won't read it all to you, mm. but I'll skip down to verse 28. The Pharisees at this point have challenged him, saying, well, it's only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. So they're, they're basically attributing Jesus' power to Satan. Yeah. And Jesus responds, but if I drive out demons by the spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Mm-hmm. So... Um, the, the idea is there's, there's only two places this sort of power comes from. Mm. It's either Satan or God. And if it's not Satan, then it's God. And that's got huge implications for his audience. Mm. Um, and then he says this, or again, how can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man? Then he can rob his house. Mm. So this is Jesus explaining the power that he has, mm. the authority that he has from God. It's quite interesting. So he's understanding his power um, is to be exercised in relation to this strong man who is Satan. Mm. He, he really sees that his work on the earth is to challenge Satan's power and authority. Mm. And he talks about it in terms of a two-step process. Mm. What's step one? What must he do first? Tie up the strong man. Yeah. So this is a picture of disempowering Satan. That's step one. Mm. Uh, challenging his his authority. And, and Jesus' understanding is that his presence on the earth means that God's kingdom has come. Mm-hmm. That's what the whole Isaiah prophecy in the first few verses that we read was about. God's mm. kingdom's here yeah. in power. Mm. Um, and, and he looks to the cross. Um, increasingly in the gospel story, you'll see he looks to the cross as that defining event that that is going to completely destroy Satan's power and authority. Mm-hmm. Um, but his presence um, is is an is a work of power mm-hmm. that's challenging Satan on the and, and Satan's realm and Satan's authority on the earth. What's step two? Carrying away his possessions. Right. So once once Satan's power has been overthrown, then yeah. there's another step, which is then you can rob the house. Yeah. That is, go in and take all his possessions. Yeah. So how are we understanding these two steps? What 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 does he mean by taking his possessions? Do you think? What's he looking forward to? Um, taking back people? Yeah. Satan's possessions at the moment, mm. well, well, at the time he was speaking that, are people. They're in bondage to him. Yeah. And not just Israel here. The whole world. The whole world. All the nations of the world are in bondage. And so Jesus is talking about a process where Satan is dis- disempowered and then his possessions are taken. That is people that be- have formerly belonged to him, are mm. set free and released. Mm. That's the picture. Mm. Um, so back to Revelation, 
what is the binding of Satan about, about then? Disempowering. It is about the disempowering of Satan and, and Revelation is being really clear in terms of Satan's ability to deceive the nations, mm -hmm. that is, trick them and keep them in bondage. Mm -hmm. That power he's lost. And we've already seen in Revelation he, ha he has no power. Satan has no power to touch the church or damage the kingdom. A lot of Revelation 12, if you remember back, was really about that idea that people might die, but the kingdom's going to go forward and the church is preserved. You might lose your life, but you'll never lose your relation to God. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Um. Just look at the the, the very last, um, you flicked back to Revelation, but I'll just read it to you. I want to read one more verse from the Matthew passage, which is the next verse. So this is um, verse 30. He who is not with me is against me, and he do, who does not gather with me scatters. Now, that's a direct challenge to the Pharisees. He's saying you're either with me or against me, and mm. if you're not helping me gather, then you're scattering. You're working against my kingdom and my rule. Mm. What I want to pick up on, though, is Jesus is recognizing that in terms of this process of disempowering Satan, mm. robbing him of his possessions, mm. he, he's defining it in terms of it's a gathering work, mm. that the work he's doing is a gathering work. Mm -hmm. And, it, and, and he's looking for people to help him do that, do that gathering. Mm. Um, what's really interesting that we'll see in Revelation is he gathers, the, the gathering work involves gathering um, those that are his, but also the gathering of his enemies for mm. judgment. Um, gathering is what God does. Mm. So what I would argue strongly is that, the binding of Satan is something that is relevant now. It's not some future thing that's going to happen. Mm. Um, the binding of Satan is something that Jesus recognised was part of his work mm. on the earth, his incarnation, his life and ministry, um, his death on the cross and his resurrection was a work of power that resulted in the binding of Satan. Satan. I think that that's quite clear from how, how Jesus is um, talking here. Um, and this releases something in terms of um, uh, the conflict between um, the enemies of God and, and this mighty conqueror who's come. And that is there's now a freedom to gather because the house, the, the house is left open. It's vulnerable. In, in terms of using that picture. And I think that's a description of the age of the church. Mm. That's the age we're in now, isn't it? Mm. Satan Satan is bound. Yeah. Nations are no longer deceived. So what are we seeing? We're seeing the story of the church is the story of a gospel that goes out to all the nations of the world. And people are coming in. Mm. The people that are being released from that 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 house of the strong man are coming into God's kingdom, mm. free to gather. And he's gathered, God is doing through his church, by his spirit, through the powerful work of the gospel, he is gathering from all the nations those that are his. Mm. So, what's being described here, 
I don't think is a future thing. He's describing to the churches that are listening to these visions and are are being encouraged by them. Mm. He's saying, this is what you're experiencing now. And it's what we're experiencing in the 21st century. We're part of the same age, that age of grace, Mm. where the gospel's going out and doing a powerful work gathering because uh, the strong man has been bound by Jesus' work and now we're robbing the house. That, that's what's going on. So can you see how this would be a great encouragement to these Christians in the first century who are asking that question about, you know, why are we suffering? Is Satan unleashed mm. against us? And and um, the answer is if Christians are being gathered from among the nations, if people are coming into the church, that's a reassuring sign mm. to all of these first century Christians that Satan has been stripped of his power. So one of the things it says in um, verse 3 in regard to Satan being locked in the abyss um, is that uh, he'll be kept from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. So there's this time period of a thousand years, and it reappears in the next section because it starts to talk about um the the rule of the saints um and and it talks about it in in the context of this um thousand year reign and and then at the end of that section the thousand years have ended what what's going on with this thousand years the first thing that i think's really clear is like just about everything else in revelation it's not literal it's not literally a thousand historical years mm-hmm. what you have here is a a period of time that metaphorically speaks of um, it's about the quality of time, not the quantity of time. A thousand, a thousand, the number of thousands speaks of something perfect, something complete, something total. Mm. I think that that's the point being made here. So the thousand years is literally the perfect period of time for the ingathering. That's the point being made. And it and it, it um, will correspond to the time where Satan is bound and the time where the saints are ruling with mm-hmm. Christ in heaven. And we'll talk more about that in a minute. So it's expressing something relational. It's saying in re- um, the, the thousand years speaks of there's an ingathering that's taking place in relation to Jesus' enemies, his victory is total and complete. Mm-hmm. Um, and in relation to his rule, um, there's a perfect ingathering going on that that's um, that Jesus is completely in control of and um, bringing about his purposes through through history. Mm-hmm. Um, Again, this understanding isn't just pulled out of thin air. If you go back to the Old Testament or the New Testament, there's a number of places that talk about a thousand years being like one day Mm -hmm. in God's presence. And the whole point is it's not about quantity of time. It's about quality of time. Mm -hmm. We mightn't read those verses, but I'll just, you might want to look them up yourself if you're listening. But Psalm 90 verse 4 is a, 
um, very clear place that this is mentioned. In the New Testament, um, the Apostle Peter in his second letter in chapter 3 verse 8 says pretty much the same thing. A thousand years is, is as one day in your sight. Um, the other thing that reinforces that this is qualitative time rather than quantitative, not a literal thousand years, is it's, it, it's contrasted at the end with a short time where um, Satan will be released to deceive the nations. And what's mm. being pointed out here is the fact that Satan is on a leash, that um, he, he's only released for a short time. This indicates in terms of his power and his authority, it's very limited and confined. Mm. It's actually confined um, to what God wants him to do and nothing more and nothing less. He's, he's, in, he's in a sense God's devil at that point. Um, if we're in a um, lounge room with people all around, I'd obviously give you an opportunity to ask questions, but I just um, I think that's enough to say about that point. From verse 4 in chapter 20 of Revelation, you, a, a picture starts to be built that's taken straight from the final chapters of Ezekiel. So you have um, the gathering of God's people um, and their rule over the Messianic kingdom, followed by um, the gathering of God's enemies and a final battle that involves Gog and Magog and then the coming of a new temple um, and a new Jerusalem being established. This this um, pattern in Revelation that begins in um, twenty verse four and really goes right to the end of chapter twenty two is um, very self consciously parallels um, Ezekiel chapter thirty seven through forty eight. Um, we could spend a whole day just looking at the parallels, but I just wanted to point that out, and I think I mentioned last time. Well worth reading those last chapters of Ezekiel to get some context for um, how John is putting these pictures together in order. So, Hannah, let's just have a look at um, the picture from verse 4 down to verse 6. What are we seeing here? What's the, what, what are we seeing in this picture? Um, seated on thrones are those who had been given authority to judge. Okay, so who might they be? Well, we'll, we'll see. <laughs> um, and then uh, those who had been beheaded, the yeah, so the martyrs. Um, they had not worshipped the beast or received his mark. So that they they're holy. That's a picture of they they'd stayed pure, undefiled. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. Okay, so they come to life and reign with Christ a thousand years. Um, again, that, that phrase, come to life, is a phrase taken straight from Ezekiel chapter 37, verse 10. Um, a couple of things to say about this. Uh, thrones indicate what are these people doing? Ruling. It, yeah, it's, it's always been a symbol of rule. Um, and what's really interesting, where you have people coming together on thrones to judge, um, what we're seeing is something that's taking place in heaven. 
that's quite important to understand because um, it, it helps understand what uh, this first resurrection is about because we're seeing verse 5, the rest of the dead didn't come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. So there's a sense in which the saints, that is God's people who have suffered on the earth, are alive to him um, in a unique way in heaven that's distinct from the general resurrection where everybody is raised to life at the very end of the age. Um, And I think we can say some things that are clear about this. That it's in heaven is important. Um, There's there's 46 times, I think, that heavenly thrones Mm. are mentioned in or thrones are mentioned in the book of Revelation in its entirety. Mm. 42 of those directly correspond to heaven. That, that, they, that this ruling takes place from heaven. The other four are all in chapter 22 when heaven comes to earth. So okay. um, 100% what's going on here is we're, we're witnessing something taking place in heaven. Mm. So, so the saints have come to life in heaven and are reigning with Christ for this, for this period of um, ingathering. Um, this is quite interesting in relation to, do you remember back to chapter 6? I'll, I'll just flick back. Um, do you remember these same saints? We've come across them before. Um, verse 9 to 11. When he opened the, the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who'd been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. They called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth, and avenge our blood. So this is the saints crying out for justice. Mm. And we've, we have finally now in chapter 20 how God's going to resolve this situation. They're calling out for judgment. And what's the amazing thing we're seeing here about the judgment? They're given authority to judge. Right. They're calling for judgment and they're given the, author- the actual authority to judge. But in chapter 6, they're told to wait until, and then they're not given authority. It feels like it's a bit different. Yes, because because there's a sense in which um, I think that the point being made in chapter 6 is around the idea of patience and forbearance, that enemies won't meet their, or get their just desserts. It, it's, not, it's not so much a, um, a waiting in terms of um, a contradiction to chapter 20, what what God's saying in chapter 6 is uh, at the moment we're in an age of uh, gospel proclamation where God is being gracious and forbearing and he's withholding final judgment until the ingathering is complete. And so the point he's making to the saints there is you uh, justice it, it may look like I'm um, not acting justly, but I'm actually being patient because I, m- my purpose at the moment is to gather. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. I think that's the point from Chapter 6. Um, I want to just ha- have a look at where this picture of the rule of the saints 
um, comes from because, again, it's a very important um, picture that's straight out of the Old Testament. So if we flick back to Daniel 7, and Hannah and I are in a race to find it, she'll probably win. Got it. Um, read the, that whole, we're just going to read three verses, but read 21 and 22 together and then 26 and 27. As as I watched, this horn was waging war against the saints and defeating them until the Ancient of Days came and pronounced judgment in favour of the saints of the Most High and the time came when they possessed the kingdom. Okay, so what, what's being established here is that um, or, or the, the thing that we're interested in is mm. that the kingdom will become the possession of the saints. Now, this mm. is spelled out in more detail toward the end of this chapter. And apologies for not giving you a long introduction to Daniel 7, but this is a passage we've been back to at least three or four times in our study of Revelation. So I'm presuming you know the context a little bit. So the final picture of um, uh, the kingdom of God from Daniel chapter 7, verse 26 and 27. But the court will sit and his power will be taken away and completely destroyed forever. Then the sovereignty, power, and greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be handed over to the saints, the people of the Most High. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all rulers will worship and obey him. Okay, so we see that the um, the beast is judged and power is taken away. Then sovereignty, power, and greatness of the kingdom under the whole heaven will be handed over to the saints, the people of the Most High. So this everlasting kingdom established by God, he's actually going to share his rule with the saints. And that's that's the picture that's being picked up in Revelation. It's a, a picture of the, the great king sharing his rule um, with the holy saints in heaven. So, um, again, in the New Testament, this is picked up quite a bit as well. Uh, we won't um, go and look it up, but in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12, it emphasizes the point, those who endure with him on the earth will reign with him. This was the expectation of the early church. Paul makes a similar point in Romans 8. Mm -hmm. You know, those who suffer with Christ will reign with him. Um, so what have we got here? Well, this is a heavenly perspective on the suffering church. So the first thing that's, that this suffering church ha has that's been made clear to them is that Satan is bound. Mm. The ingatherings happening. Mm. Um, the ki the kingdom rule of uh, the Lord is is established, um, and uh, there's there's people coming into the church. Mm -hmm. Um. From the perspective of the earth, what does that look like? Well, it looks like suffering. On the earth, people are suffering and dying. Yeah. Um, when it says Satan is bound, it doesn't mean Satan can do nothing. It means Satan's bound with respect to his ability to deceive the nations. That ability has been taken away. Uh, are the church still suffering and dying under persecution? Yes, they are, but but with respect to that powerful work of ingathering, a release has happened, and and the church is being gathered. 
So from the perspective of the earth, you see a suffering church, but you see a growing church as people um, come in mm. um, to the church out of the strong man's house. From the perspective of heaven, what does this look like? The saints sitting on thrones. Yeah, ruling. the saints sitting on thrones ruling. So this is this is the great encouragement to the suffering church who who are wondering about what they're experiencing and enduring. And what 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 Jesus is saying is uh, endure on the earth, overcome on the earth, but recognize in terms of reality, in heaven, this looks like something completely different. You're sitting on thrones, ruling. You're alive to me. Um, that is, uh, you've, you've been made alive, spiritually made alive, in a way that, that you're participating in my rule over this age where, where um, the gospel's being proclaimed and preached. I think that's that's um, the encouraging message. So it, to understand just um, quickly, what is this first resurrection that's talked about? I think this is explaining a relation. This is explaining a, re, a relationship between the church and Jesus. Mm. And in this relation, the church is being reassured that... Um, even if you die for your faith on the earth, you're alive to God in heaven and sharing in his rule. Does that make sense? Mm. So I think that what's being described here is a spiritual resurrection. Um, and and when they, these Christians are told um, the rest of the dead won't come to life until the end. This is the first re resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who have part in the first resurrection. Mm. The second death has no power over them. Mm. That is, they won't die again. Mm. Um, um, and, and it talks about their function, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. So, again, emphasizing the twofold role of, of uh, the holy ones, the saints in heaven. They'll be priests and they will reign, that is, kings and priests. Mm. Um, and, again, there's all sorts of New Testament passages that talk about this as the um, the hope of Christians. Mm. Um, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5 to 9, um, says, it, says it really, really clearly that we will be a kingdom of priests. Um, Hebrews talks about it. Many places in the New Testament um, talk about it. Are all Christians... Saints or just the ones who have been martyrs? I I think this is this is a picture of the, of the church, the suffering church. So in my, in my view, my interpretation of this is this is this is a picture that encompasses all Christians. So when yep. Christians die, they're alive spiritually in heaven yeah. with God, sharing in His rule from heaven and and participating as priests and kings. Um, during this age of grace, and there'll be a final day w where where we all receive new bodies, a bodily re resurrection on the earth. Mm -hmm. That's not what's being talked about here, though. Yeah. Verse seven returns to um, 
the the little comment that was made in verse three that Satan must be set free for a short time. And what the vision is mm-hmm. going to explain now is or what we're going to see is what what's going to happen during that short time. So in verse seven, when the thousand years are over, um, that's a statement that clearly indicates there's a sequence at work here, I think. Yeah. Um, when the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth. The very thing that he's been bound mm. to not be able to do, mm. he will be released and be able to do for, for a short time. Um, um and, and gather them for battle. And as I said to you um, previously, I, I think this is the same battle. It's just explaining it from the perspective of what's going on with Satan. Mm. Um, it's the same battle from Chapter 19. So he's gathering the nations. And Gog and Magog are, are ancient nations from the book of Genesis. Mm. Um, you see them crop up in um, prophecies um, throughout the Old Testament as well. Um, Prophecies often connected with uh, the enemies of Israel coming to attack Israel. Mm. Um, in numbers, they are like sands on the seashore. Sea they marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city that he loves, which is a picture of Israel and Jerusalem. Yeah, Israel and Jerusalem. I think it's quite interesting that. The word camp is used here because that that is definitely um, an allusion to Israel camping in the wilderness during their wilderness wanderings Mm. where where they were from time to time attacked as well. Mm. Um, And the idea is that God's going to protect the people in his camp. But this, this, this picture of God's people in the wilderness, um, again, suggests to me what we have here is God's people who are under judgment. This is a picture of um, perhaps faithless Israel rather than faithful Israel. Mm. Um, But God's going to protect them. The story of his dealings with Israel from the beginning is his covenant dealings. It's always been God is faithful with his faithless people. Mm. uh but fire came down from heaven and devoured them so god's judgment is going to um overwhelm these enemies that that have been gathered against israel mm-hmm. i really think the picture of picture here has shifted from the church which has been the focus of the first um six verses mm-hmm. to to israel now there is there there are co- commentaries and commentators that would disagree with this they would say this is a continued allusion to the church mm-hmm. but my view is um we've moved to a paradigm that's about israel and the nations and it's a national paradigm mm-hmm. it's dealing with it's dealing with with relations on a national scale now and this is how god's going to resolve the question of israel and the question of the nations um and it's um in in terms of building a case that's always been the way that god has dealt with israel and the nations he's always dealt with them together if you go right back to um the very beginnings of god's covenant with abraham in Genesis chapter 12, 
Um, this is what he says. I'll make you into a great nation and I'll bless you. I'll make your name great and you will be a blessing and I'll bless those who bless you. Whoever curses you, I will curse. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Mm. So the idea that, that the way God works through Israel in relation to the nations or the people around mm. is that, one, he's going to turn Israel into a nation mm-hmm. and he's going to relate to all the other nations in terms of how they relate to Israel. Mm. Now, that's what's happening in this picture in Revelation. Um the enemies of God are being exposed and revealed because they're coming to attack the nation that's Israel. Mm. Um, we see this in the Gospels as well. Do you remember God uh, Jesus' story about the final judgment um, in Matthew 25 about the sheep and the goats? Yeah, vaguely. And, and, and people are... Uh, peering before the judgment seat, and he's showing mercy to some and wrath to others, and it's all based on how they handled the least of these, Mm. how they handled Jews and Christians um, in particular. So people are judged based on how they relate um, to those that belong to God, that that are his covenant people. So, again, we don't need to go in, into it in detail because I think we talked a lot about this when we looked at Chapter 9. But um, Satan is calling these nations to battle, but this is a work of God. God is gathering these nations to battle against Israel so he can defeat them and judge them once and for all um, so mm-hmm. that his holy name can be known. Well, what does that mean? Well, for Israel, they'll know his holy name because they'll recognize they have a deliverer who's faithful to his covenant promises. Mm. For the nations, they'll know his holy name because they'll recognize they have an overpowering conqueror um, who'll judge them and they'll experience his wrath. Mm. So um, God's people and God's enemies will experience the relation differently um, from two different sides. Um, Zechariah chapter 12 and 14 is the place to go that that explores this picture of of Israel's national redemption. Mm. Um, That's the place to go to in the Old Testament. It's a really, really interesting book, Zechariah. And, And chapter 12 to chapter 14 really focuses on how will God's relation to Israel be finally resolved? Now, we won't go into and look at it in detail, but there's this amazing passage at the end of the age where God has delivered Israel from her enemies, where, where, where the prophet says they will look on the one they have pierced and weep. Mm. So it's the idea that they will Israel will finally recognise the truth about their Messiah. Mm. And they'll they'll weep and repent and be deeply sorrowful for the fact that they've how they've treated him, the one they have pierced. But they'll see the truth in the end. So this is a picture of um, Israel and the nations. Where do Christians fit into at this point in the story? Yeah, good question. Um, the difficulty is, is that, that to say anything would to be 
be to make a case from silence. They, they clearly, well, in my view, they're not the focus of this section. Mm. So you're speculating. Yeah. Um, some commentators would say that the picture of um, um, the camp of God's people, the city he loves, includes yeah. covenant people that are Christians. Yeah. Maybe. Uh-huh. But this is what this is what I would say in terms of our relational understanding of what's going on at the end of the age. Mm-hmm. What we've seen really clearly in chapter 19 is yeah. that there's two sides to Jesus coming again. Yeah. One is a final battle yeah. that that is about um, resolving the relationship that God has with his enemies. And the other, the other side at the beginning of chapter 19 is about a wedding feast mm. where a beautiful bride is being presented to her husband. Yeah. So I think that the relational answer to your question is, well, where are Christians? Christians are uh, uh, the, the picture for them yeah. is the wedding banquet, yeah. that, that they're, being, uh, they're being welcomed into this um, joined life with mm. the Lamb um, in a way that they're they're experiencing it in all its fullness and to sight. Um, chapter twenty has given us some clues as to what this age of grace is like. Mm-hmm. That the church will suffer on the earth, but will be ruling in heaven. Mm-hmm. But at the very end, I think that the answer is there's a wedding. Yeah. For 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 Christians, and there's a battle for Israel and the nations. Um, Beyond that, I would be totally speculating about events or um, chronologies or or whatever. Um, But it is like we can say the battle in Armageddon has been referenced multiple times and Christians are not mentioned Specifically, in relation to any of the no accounts of the no, battles. No, the the whole paradigm around the battle is it's a resolution of the question of the nations. Yeah, um, and that's what that's we, what we see in the Old Testament as well. It's where God deals with nations. Um, what we're going to see in this very last section is God dealing with individuals, mm-hmm. which is quite a different thing. Um, so let's move on and have a look at the final judgment. So what can the what can the church be sure of with regard to the outcome for the devil or for Satan? Well, it's made crystal clear in verse 10. And the mm-hmm. devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet had been um, thrown. Mm-hmm. Uh, they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So there's an element of punishment here. But I think um, in terms of understanding what's going on, in the end, the enemies of God aren't just judged and condemned, they're abolished. Yeah. That's the point of this lake of fire. Mm-hmm. So we'll see Satan's thrown in there. Um, death and Hades are thrown in there as well. We'll see in a few verses' time. That's the lake of fire's meaning. It's a second death. Yeah. What? what And this is quite important to understand. It goes all the way back to Genesis. What is death? Well, it's not primarily biological. Death isn't when Mm. your heart stops and you stop breathing and your cells die or whatever. Mm. It's relational. Mm. 
um, and that's that's this relational way we're understanding things makes sense of this a lot. Mm. Death is relational separation. Mm. So what does the second death mean? Well, the second death means permanent relational separation. Mm. That's why it's so horrific. Mm. It's it's relational separation that you can never come back from. Mm. Um, so what's the point with Satan, death, and Hades, and ultimately everyone else whose name's not in the book of life as well? Well, the point is these beings don't share a relation with the one who is the end, the eschaton, Jesus. Mm. That's what it means to be thrown in the lake of fire. That is, Jesus is making the judgment on the end and everything is being resolved in relation to me. Mm. And in the end, there's some here that I do not have a relation with. Mm. There's no place for you in the new heaven and new earth because there is no relation. That's the whole point. And so um, it, it's like it's like um, it's like the phrase that you see in the scripture sometimes uh, things that never entered God's mind. It's mm. like he, he's making it uh, what God is revealing is you have no part in my thoughts, in my life, in in a- any future with me. Mm. and and so that is, to be abolished, mm. um, and that's the horror for. for that's the torment. Um, the torment is eternally relationless. Mm. That's that that that's what the second death means. So, um, then we have a picture of a great white throne, um, and him who was seated on it. This is Jesus. And earth and sky fled from his presence. Um, I think this is a picture of um, the old heaven and earth making way for the new heaven and earth. Um, you're, you're seeing the, the, the literally the end of the age here, and we'll see in um, chapter 21 and 22 um, the beginnings of a, a, a new heaven and a new earth. Mm-hmm. And then John sees the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to what had been done as recorded in the books. So we, what we have here is um, more than one book were, were, was opened, and two are literally um, mentioned here. Mm. Um, there's a book of judgment, and there's also a book of deeds. Um, called the Book of Life. Um, and these two books, again, come straight out of Daniel's prophecy. We might go back and have a quick look at um, where these books um, are first mentioned. Mm. So Daniel chapter 7 again, um, verse 9 and 10, talks about the Book of Judgment, which is about... Um, it's a picture or a metaphor for those who are under condemnation. As I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow. The hair on his the hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. 
Thousands upon thousands attended him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated and the books were opened. Okay. Um, not too sure what I was going to say about that, other than that, that's a reference to the same type of picture. Just flick forward to Daniel 12, verse 1 and 2. Do you want me to read it? Yeah. At that time, Michael, the great prince who protects your people, will arise. There will be a time of distress such as has not happened from the beginning of nations until then. But at that time, your people, everyone whose name is found written in the book, will be delivered. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. Okay, so so again, um, if your name's written in in that book, then it's about life. Um, Jesus discusses this book of life in the Gospels as well. I don't know if you remember the story, but in Luke chapter ten, verses twenty and twenty-one, um, the the disciples are celebrating the fact that they've been able to drive out demons. Do, oh, yeah. do you remember? Yeah. And Jesus says to them. Uh, don't rejoice about that. Rejoice that your name is written in the book of life. What's the point? What's the significant thing? Having power or having a relationship? Because that's what the book of life means. Doesn't it mean, I'd say your names are written in heaven. Oh, yeah, maybe you're right. Maybe. <laughs> Let's check. Yeah, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Okay, I won't make too much of that. But the point is having your name written in heaven. It's the same point, isn't it? What does that mean? That means you're recognised, that you have a relationship. Mm. And having power is nowhere near as significant as, as having relationship. Mm. Not having your name written in heaven would indicate no relation, mm. um, and that's the that's the horror of what we saw around the second death and mm. the lake of fire. And so the the end of this section of Revelation is about um, anyone's anyone's name that was not written in the book of life. He was thrown into the lake of fire. Why? Well, it, because it indicates you don't have a relationship with the one who is the end. Mm. Moving forward into the new heaven and the new earth, um, there's no place for you if you don't have a relationship with the with the one. Mm. Um, interestingly, too, that judgment people are judged according to what they have done. This is this is um, we've moved from a national paradigm to an individual paradigm here. It's about individual actions, the responsibility of individuals. What could we say about this? Um, in the end, I, th I think it, you're looking at something quite mysterious here in mm. terms of the, the final judgment. Um, and this, the parables of the sheep and the goats is helpful to read alongside a passage like this that sounds quite devastating um, because what we see in that passage is um, God's mercy will surprise us. Mm. That, that um, I, I don't think God's wrath will, will surprise us as much as his mercy. 
that the extent to which he's he loves the lengths that he's gone to gather um, the ones that are his. I think that's what we'll be celebrating at the very end. So in the end, um, it's it's a picture of um, the complete end of things. Everything has been resolved. Um, Jesus is reigning, total power, total authority, bringing all the purposes of, you know, and the threads of history together in this um, final moment and ready to take forward his people into a new heaven and a new earth, which is the glorious conclusion to the book of Revelation in the last two chapters. Um, But for those who are reading this as the early church and are struggling and suffering, it's a great encouragement to know um, Jesus reigns. I'm just going to finish with reading a, a little passage that I read this week from 2 Peter chapter 3 that um, I, I think sums up this this sort of spirit of encouragement um, around recognising that God's bringing about his purposes in these last days and how to think about them. Um, he's not slow to judge, but he's patient because he, because he, he loves and he wants... Um, he wants to give everyone an opportunity to know grace and his love um, and he's taking time to gather his people. So I'll, I'll just finish reading this. I won't really explain it. I'll just let you reflect on it. First of all, you must understand that in the last days scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming he promised? Ever since our fathers died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. But they deliberately forgot that long ago, by God's word, the heavens existed and the earth was formed out of water and by water. By these waters also the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and the destruction of ungodly men. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destructions of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness.